Hey, man. How's it going? Yo, Dev. Yo. How's it going, man? Very good. How are you? Good. So a little bit of background on us. Uh, we both went to school in Hawaii. Uh, you went to school on Oahu first, which is a smaller island. I went to school on the big island of Hawaii. And then at some point, our paths converged on the big island, and uh, we were both in school together. So talk me through how you ended up at Mauna Loa. What was your life beforehand? And then how you ended up in flight school in Hawaii. I developed an interest in helicopters, which could turn into a longer story to hear that detail. But I got this interest, and then I I had some friends that I knew in the Girdwood, Alaska area, where I'm from, that developed a similar interest and decided to follow this path. And they went to Mauna Loa. I didn't know exactly where they went, but I reached out to them and said, hey, how did this work for you? What did, what did it take? How long was the process? What did it cost? I asked them all the questions. And they both had a great experience with Mauna Loa, and they highly recommended it. I looked into it. I considered a number of other schools, but in the end, I went with their recommendation. And I liked the idea of some sun because I've been in Alaska for long enough. Uh, so, uh, that sounded good. And that, that was the beginning. So, what'd you do before inquiring? What'd you do before? <laughs> what was your, uh, how old are you? I'm 43. 43. Okay. So what'd you do beforehand? So for the last 18 years, um, I have been in, uh, the mountain rescue industry, if you will, um, working as a ski patroller, um, at a resort in Alaska. Uh, I started that path in Colorado. Um, at Loveland Ski Area, developed an interest in uh, medical and first aid. After um, after a couple of first responders responded to me and saved my life. What happened? Um, I uh, I was skiing and um, had a little accident and collapsed a lung, lacerated a spleen and a kidney, <laughs> uh, broke a few ribs. Um, and I remember after that accident, I remember I could barely breathe, and I remember. Um, right before I passed out, I remember gasping for air and moving around trying to figure out what was comfortable. And I remember seeing a guy in a red jacket show up and tell me I was going to be all right. And then I remember passing out. And then I woke up in an ambulance uh, on the way down to a hospital in Denver. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, I. I developed a new interest right then in there in like a new respect for what that person was and what role they played a year later i had another accident uh, <laughs> where i blew my knees out how'd that one happen that one i uh I, I was into gymnastics when i was younger and i was pretty into jumping uh, on skis and doing things in the air and that's how these accidents were occurring the learning curve didn't quite match up <laughs> with what i was trying to do so uh again i remember i was hauled off the hill by patrollers and it was that second accident that i was like all right i need to make a change of what my plan is here because i was trying to be a pro skier and i was trying to take a path that was gonna earn an income on that route and it was proving to be painful so uh i started looking into it. i started asking questions talked to the guys that were helping me and asked them what it was like asked them all those questions and you know, one thing led to another, and I signed up for an EMT course um, and started skiing around with uh, the patrollers that were at Loveland Ski Area in Colorado. And 
then ultimately I learned the legendary mountains and steep and snow in Alaska. And I decided to move to Alaska. That was 2003. Um, and went up there and I started skiing and joined the, the patrol up there. And that job started as a, a winter job only, but it turned into year round, summer and winter, hauling people off the mountain that were skiing, snowboarding in the winter or in the summer, hiking, mountain biking, paragliding, um, that kind of thing. That's the, that's the, kind of the spectrum of people that we would help bandage up, haul off the mountain and pass on to an ambulance. What, were you paid well? Were you compensated well? Or is that job paid pretty well? Uh, I uh, originally, no. Um, in fact, the, the very first winter, I volunteered to do it to just learn the skills. And then I proved myself and they hired me. And I saw that what the pay scale was like as a patroller and wasn't quite satisfied with that. So I started, I developed an interest in leadership and I got into playing supervisor manager roles and I eventually worked my way through the ranks and I became the director of the entire patrol. And by the time I got there, I did that for 10 years. And from start to finish, I would say in the last five years, especially that I was there, it did fit the category of paid well, particularly for what the job was. How much? Um, I was about 80, 85,000. That's pretty good. So, That's pretty good. And did yeah. you enjoy it? I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Super dynamic, super dynamic, super rewarding, fulfilling, satisfying, helping people. And what was your highest degree of medical training to, as you were going through that? Uh, so the, the ski patroller person um, job requires something that's specific and unique to ski patrol that the National Ski Patrol uh, is a curriculum that they developed, and that's called outdoor emergency care. Okay. So, th and that consists of about 120, if I remember right, 120 to 125 hours of mostly trauma based uh, learning, a little bit of medical. Um, and that's fairly parallel with what an EMT is. An EMT basic is about 130 hours, slightly more, and a little bit more oriented toward medical than what the trauma is. Um, covers mostly the same things, just a little more emphasis with the OEC on trauma and a little more emphasis on the medical with the EMT. And I held both of those, those certificates. And um, while I was in Girdwood, I also volunteered for the fire department. I say volunteer, it's a, just a very low paying apprenticeship, basically. Uh, you do get paid a, a nominal wage while you're there, um, inventorying medicine or uh, equipment that's on the ambulances or fire trucks. Uh, and if you're responding, you get paid. Or if you're training, you get paid. Uh, I was able to take advantage of being a member and helping where I could. And as a member, they provided lots of training in-house. And some of the training that they did was they provide EMT training. They provided, in Alaska, we have three levels of EMTs. We have EMT1, EMT2, and an EMT3. And I trained through all those levels. EMT3 is uh, very similar to what a paramedic is yeah. um, uh, in Alaska because Alaska is remote enough. There's enough remote areas that they, they have this thing called expanded scope. What a regular EMT can do. They provide opportunities for um, EMT twos and threes to do more advanced things like IVs and um, administering cardiac drugs and 
things like that. And there's only a couple of procedures and drugs that, that paramedics administer that an EMT3 doesn't. So that so is the medical training that I... You spent 20 years on the slopes um, in ski patrol. Is that the appropriate term, ski patrol? Yeah. The, like, they're ski patrollers. That's all. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll take a quick time out on that. Originally, yes, it was just a winter only. While I was there at that company, at that resort, we opened a summer operation. And it was a, somewhat a byproduct of need to try to create some, some revenue in the summer yeah, because mountain biking was up and coming. But at the same time, people are, were staying at the hotel all summer long, and more and more people were out hiking, and more and more people were out paragliding. And there, by, uh, by need, we learned that we had to have staff on in the summer to be able to respond to these things because injuries kept happening. We didn't have anybody around to take care of it. Broken leg here, paraglider stuck in a tree there. So they hired me on. That was in 2011 in the summer to start a summer patrol program. So we went away from the word ski patrol and just became mountain patrol because yeah. we were there all year long, it's not a, just skiing. It's a great name. Yeah. Mountain rescue. Mountain rescue. <laughs> so during your time there, what interactions did you have with helicopters? Yeah. So there were uh, probably five different uh, helicopter entities that we worked with um, throughout a calendar year there for various purposes. Um, uh, life Med, Life Flight, that kind was of thing. Was this in Colorado or Alaska? This is in Alaska. Okay. Uh, so we call them Life Med, Flight for Life, uh, whatever the local name is in whatever region uh, you're familiar. Um, so as a helicopter medevac, if there was a need to transport a patient somewhere a little bit more urgently, get them to Anchorage, the, the ambulance drive, let me, let me just back paddle for a second. Girdwood is probably 27 to 30 miles from Anchorage along the road system. And to travel that by ambulance and to get into the city where the hospitals are, it's close to a 40-minute drive. So depending on how urgent the patient is, uh, what the injury is, it could be faster to hop over all of that with a helicopter, depending on where the helicopter is located at the time if we call them. So uh, we arranged for that resource to be an option for us. Uh, instead of or in lieu of uh, the ambulance. So we worked with our, our local Flight for Life called Life Med, and we developed a number of landing zones all over the ski area. Um, and annually, once or twice in the winter, once in the winter, once in the summer at least, we'd bring them down to do a, a public relation training together to orient them with what our landing zones look like and practice loading a patient in and out of the helicopter. And we called them on a, on a few occasions uh, for the real needs. Um, not a significant, um, not a significant number, but we did. So that's one. We also, um, winter and summer, there's a reason or a need sometimes to get up onto the, the way Alieska, uh, the name of the mountain that it was at. Um, the way that is oriented is the ski area is mostly down below a very large ridge and mountain that's up above it. I'm using my hands and you can't see me if it's not on video. <laughs> yeah. But up above is hard to access, hard to get to, especially in the winter avalanche terrain. So we'd use helicopters to get up top. To, to we, we built uh, weather stations up there that monitored winds, monitored temperatures, that kind of thing, snowfall. Um, so to build that in the first place or to do service to it, we also, because it's up high and very inaccessible, 
we have rescue caches that are up there. So we had to staff those or stock those every now and then, inventory them, change gear out of there. So Is it just like a box with stuff? Yeah, it's like a big utility box that's all sealed with stuff in it, ropes and carabiners and stuff, uh, blankets. Uh, so we'd use helicopters to get up there. Uh, a couple different companies would provide that service now and then. And we also use the local um, uh, heli ski company called Two Gatch Powder Guides. Uh, and if we were ever making plans to allow public to go and hike up there on the ridge, we would use helicopters to get our staff up there, the patrol staff up there, to run routes with, with dynamite to start avalanches to clear the areas and to to get that personnel up there. And then the public, um, once, we, once we're up there in position, then the public, we'd allow them to hike up and ski it for the day. So you kind of just like piqued my interest. Talk to me about dynamite. <laughs> what was that like blowing up uh, sides of mountains? That was fun. Um, making like, that's a, it's a really good place. It's a class A avalanche um, ski area. Class A? Class A. Um, meaning there's, uh, of the ski areas that are out there in North America in particular, there are classifications that are, that, are, that, are, that are put out there for understanding what level of risk there is for avalanche and what level of, um, what level of artificial uh, defense they have against them. Meaning at Alieska, and if there's three others, maybe three or four others in North America that fit this category, that have artillery to help because it's so big. So we have 105 howitzers that we use. There's four of them that we have spread around the mountain. And basically in the morning when we get a bunch of snow, we would start by shooting those, depending on how much snow there was. We'd start with those before anyone else is up there because they, they make a big boom and they'll bring down typically the biggest avalanches in those areas. And then the smaller stuff we'd go up there with by hand or and, and either toss or hand place dynamite um, and ski away from it. And it's on a timer and hope that it explodes and starts an avalanche and clears the area and makes it safe. Do you guys use helicopters to drop dynamite? Mm -mm. Okay. I've seen that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the weather and the darkness up there when we're doing it doesn't really, isn't really compatible. <laughs> we're there typically early in the morning and it's still storming when we're doing this. So not flyable and it's dark because of Alaska winter. But it, just like on foot, it probably was a blast. A blast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you uh, spent 20 years in mountain patrol, um, mount, yeah, mountain patrol. And then at some point you decided to make a career shift. <clears throat> What, how long ago was this? How did, was it like s storming and fuming for a while and then you decided or was it like you kind of just decided on a moment's notice and then how did you end up deciding? There's, um, I've got a little story that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for my interest in learning how to fly helicopters. I didn't act on it for many years, but as the story goes, over the course of everything that I just described, working with helicopters, I, you know, I, I became comfortable with them, <clears throat> excuse me, became comfortable with them and became interested in them. And now and then, obviously, I had to go for rides, and I thought it was fun, and I enjoyed looking around at the mountains. And so I had this interest that was peaking, 
and in through my connections and through the people that I've that I worked with on the mountain there I met a number of people in the mountain rescue world one of them um, or a couple of them also worked in the summers and spring and summer season uh, with the uh, Denali mountain rescue team um, up on Denali um, running interference for the climbers that are up there running interference what does that mean when they have a need then they're up there to help similar to what we do at the ski area they are up there um when someone has a problem has an injury and they're trying to get themselves down they're trying to be self-sufficient but denali is much bigger and much more remote than a lot of people realize so they get into trouble a lot so they need they need someone to come and help them so the Denali Park Service has rangers that are up there that are taking turns going up and down the entire regular climbing route. It's called the West Buttress, uh, starting at base camp, which is at 7,000 feet, and then works their way up through five different camps to the summit. Uh, and high camp is at 17,000 feet. Wow. And I went up there and volunteered my time to help with that, with that because... Um, they look for volunteers that are in this profession that can lend a hand because they don't have the budget necessarily to pay everybody. Uh, and for me, it was a great experience to go up there. And I went up there two different times. Um, one time in 2007 is when this story occurred. Me and my friend who I knew were on this patrol together. We were at 14 camp, which is which, which means 14,000 feet. It's about 14,700 feet, if I remember right. And we were stationed there, and it's a fairly big camp at an altitude that people hike or they climb their way up to, ski, hike, snowshoe, however, whatever their means of travel is. And Denali is 20,000 feet. So over the course of working your way up to that altitude, you have to acclimatize. So a lot of climbers spend a few days at one camp to another, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000, 11 camp. 14 camp and then 17 and they spend a number of days slowly acclimatizing while they go 14 is a very big area on a glacier big uh, big open space um, there's a lot of coming and going people that are on their way up people that are on their way down from a climb and the park service has a medical tent there uh, to treat people and I would m- my friend and I were staffing that medical tent for about two weeks um, my entire patrol was about a month on that one we were there for about two weeks and during that two weeks there was a few different calls that we had to respond to of climbers in need help that was needed somewhere that we'd go and join in on one of which was a japanese team climbing team that was there and they had made their way up towards the summit and i can't remember if they had made the summit and were on their way down or if they were still on their way up but they got caught out overnight in a storm that came in and they spent the night at Denali Pass, which is around 19,000 feet. And word got to the rangers that were staffing the 17,000 foot camp that this was happening. And of this, I, I don't remember the number of climbers that were on this team. I want to say there was 10. One of them in particular um, was starting to show symptoms of HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema, which can be deadly if untreated. And at 19,000 feet, the way to treat it is descend in altitude. So the rangers that were up there climbed up and found these guys huddled in a bunch at 
Denali camp or at uh, Denali Pass and worked with them to get them down to 17 camp. And from there, by that point, the guy was pretty immobile and they loaded him in a gurney, um, toboggan, uh, Stokes litter. Uh, and there is a very big, so the elevation changed from 17,000 foot camp where these guys were down to 14 camp, 3,000 plus feet very technical area one of the more technical areas um to get to from 14 to 17 goes through a very rocky ridge and the rangers developed a bypass to that which involves a very long rope that doesn't quite make it down to 14 camp 3,000 feet you can imagine a rope that long but it makes it about halfway down and it gets through a rock section and it gets through some of the steeper parts and my friend and i climbed up to where that rope was going to come to an end while they lowered this patient down and we, we, we intercepted and used our ski patrol technique with a toboggan and skied the guy from there down to 14 camp, which helped his hape, but he still needed to get further down. And this whole time it's blizzarding and storm conditions. So, um, crummy weather to work in and crummy weather to be traveling across a glacier in. Uh, and to try to descend down to 7,000 feet, which is typically a couple days travel distance. Now, there's a helicopter that they use to pluck patients off and off the mountain if, if they need. And the most severe ones, they would use that for. But with blizzard conditions, they couldn't do it. So we were left to, we, we, put, the, we put the patient in a hyperbaric chamber that helps simulate uh, a better concentration of oxygen which simulates a lower um, lower altitude so that helped by a little bit of time but we could only do that for so long so we had to make a decision that we were going to continue down with the guy my friend and i were getting ready to spend uh you know work from fourteen thousand foot camp all the way down to seven thousand foot camp to base camp where hopefully at that altitude he'd be better but we had our helicopter pilot on standby, knowing that the weather was crummy. And I remember the helicopter pilot telling us on the radio, this is a scratchy G, uh, GPS radio that we were using to communicate back and forth. Down at base camp, he wasn't necessarily in the sun, but clouds were a bit broken, and there was some sky that he could fly. There was some visibility he could fly in. But up where we were, we were socked in and in blizzard conditions and poor weather. And... There was this very brief moment where the pilot thought he saw a window and he decided he'd get up and fly around and have a look. And my friend and I were getting ready to ski out with, the, with our patient to start working our way down, which was going to take us a long time and we were kind of dreading it. And sure enough, the cloud that we were in, the conditions that we were in, opened up for a very brief moment and the helicopter spotted it. And he swooped into this little window, landed at the camp, and we were able to load the patient up in the helicopter. And he pulled up and flew away, and then the window closed, and we were back in blizzard conditions again. And that was the moment for me. I was like, holy shit. Can I say that word on this? Yeah. Yeah. I said, that's cool. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. So that was 2007. 2011 is when I took my intro flight, was considering it a little bit more seriously. And then the job that I had was 
continuing to be more and more fun, more and more rewarding, pay better and better. And it became harder and harder for me to decide to leave it and start this new path. And then COVID happened and jobs all went on pause. And that was the opportunity for me to say, all right, I'm making a change. So you had a couple friends that had gone to Mauna Loa prior, and then you decided, ah, that's uh, that's the school I'm going to go to. So like I said, at the start of this, you there's two schools. There's the Kona base, which is kind of like the larger school, and then there's the base on Oahu. You originally went to the Oahu base. Yes, sir. Why'd you go there? Um, two reasons. One, the friends of mine that had come here before, went to Mauna Loa before, had both suggested going go to Kona because the weather is generally better there. The winds are quieter, calmer, and you'll be able to have more training days, uh, more um, uh, less cancellations. And so that was kind of my plan. But they both said, at some point, you should make sure you go over and fly in Honolulu because it would be good practice for you flying in the Bravo airspace and it's windier there. So it was on the back of my mind. When I called Mauna Loa originally, I asked them, told them that I wanted to go to Kona. They told me that there was no space. There was a waiting list to get into that school. They said, but we do have space for new, um, for new students at Honolulu. Would you be interested in that? And the timeline, I wanted to get started ASAP. I didn't want to wait. So I just jumped on what was the soonest available. So I went to Honolulu. So I spent two months in Honolulu getting my private uh, endorsement, private rating. Um, most of it, I finished it over in Kona. So I did most of my private training in Honolulu, then moved over to Kona. Yeah. So how long was the entire duration of your training? 14 months. It was 14 months. Are you, were you pleased with that timeline? Uh, in hindsight, yes. While I was doing it, I wanted it to be faster. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's like you look at it afterwards and it's like, okay, a year and two months is, uh, that's nothing. Right. Like, and, and it went probably as fast as it, it could went, have gone. It went really fast. Yeah. Yes. But like, I remember in the moment, it's like, oh, this sucks. Like, it's yeah. just taking forever. There was a lot of those feelings for sure. So it's dragging out. So, so this is crazy. So we went to school together in Hawaii and <laughs> Ben was always, Ben was the outdoors kid. You know, he was the kid that was always out in the sun. So Ben bought a paddleboard. He had this, uh, what was it? A gold van. And yeah, Toyota Sienna. <laughs> and Ben would take this van all around the island every like Saturday morning at 6 a.m. Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Ben would be down at uh, where we, where'd, you, where'd you go? What was that bay? Not a Ho'umalu. A bay. A bay. Yeah. Yeah, you went to a bay. Um, you were always down at the beaches studying. You were the kid that was always in the sun, and uh, as much as possible, you were out there every day. And then you biked all the time. Yeah, you biked all around the, yeah, the I island. Brought, I right? brought my road bike and rode that everywhere. Yeah. So, you you got a thorough enjoyment out of Hawaii. Would you say you enjoyed it? I did my best. Oh my gosh, yes, I loved you liked it. it. And you've got this video of you playing with the whales. Oh my gosh, the whale season, like. Whales go to Hawaii in the winter, and that's when we happen to be there. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> you, you would just be out there, like, you put your, you, he showed me this video of him putting his GoPro in the water, and you could hear the, rrr, 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 from this little baby whale. It was so cool. <laughs> so it you enjoyed it. mama and a baby calf talking to each other. You could hear them back and forth, back and forth. 
they were just <laughs> circling me in the paddleboard. Uh, so you enjoyed your time in Hawaii? I did. I, I did as well. It just, you, uh, you really got the most of it. And that's awesome. So when you finished school, I was already working at Independent. How did you come by the job here? So I did my, as stated, most of my private in Honolulu. Then I moved to Kona and I finished my private in Kona and I did my commercial and then I did my CFI in Kona. After my CFI, I wanted a change and I wanted to learn a different airspace. I was enjoying learning the airspace. I enjoyed learning flying in Bravo airspace. In and what is Bravo airspace? Busy. So it's among the busiest airports in the country. Um, basically described. It's like um, your LAX, your Miami, those are all your Denver, Class B, or New York. Yeah. And people ask, well, why aren't they called Class A's? And I don't know why the FAA described it this way, but a cla Class A airspace is way up high in the. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with airports. Mm -hmm. So the biggest airports are Class Bravo. So Honolulu is one of those. And it was a real challenge learning in that as a private student, but I really appreciated it. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the complexity of it. And I enjoyed learning in the smaller airspace that, it, that was Kona once I was there. And I enjoyed learning about the weather patterns that Hawaii got, the winds that were happening. And I recognized that I thought it would be valuable to learn more airspace and more weather, different climate, different environment. So I decided rather than continue at Mauna Loa and get my instrument and double I ratings there, I would seek somewhere else. And uh, I looked around a little bit and I went to, a, I ended up deciding on a school in Oregon, um, which is a state that I hadn't, hadn't spent much time in. Um, what school was that? It was Leading Edge. Okay. And so I enrolled, talked to them and, and enrolled and uh, joined their program and did my instrument training at Leading Edge. While I was there doing my instrument training, I was planning on doing instrument and double I there. While I was there training for my instrument, um, got to know some of the CFIs, talked to the chief pilots a little bit, um, and they had a job opening coming up for an instructor, and they approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in interviewing for it um, early. I wasn't done with anything yet. I was still in training, and I went ahead and interviewed, and the intent uh, from them was to start giving me some, some students while I was working on my instrument training to start teaching students private and commercial levels. So I, I interviewed, they accepted me and hired me on. And that was in mid July, perhaps, and of this year or of last year. And then over the course of about three weeks or even a month or so, there wasn't any sign of students. And I was continuing working with my instrument nearing the end of that. While they had hired me, I started talking to more of the instructors, getting to know them a little bit better. And I learned that they, that the amount they fly per month per se wasn't very much. And I wanted to accumulate hours at a faster rate. And so uh, I started scratching my head a little bit about it. I knew Devin and Christina were at Independent. And I had heard from them a little bit about how busy they had been. So I reached out to them and asked some more detail. And sure enough, it sounded like they were flying and accumulating hours a lot faster than what I was going to be doing if I stayed at Leading Edge. So I uh, reached out to the, the owners um, and put in a resume. And 
they had a need fairly immediately. So I actually, I, I, all I did was I finished up my instrument training and uh, they have uh, an examiner here at Independent. Yeah, um, our boss. Our boss, Heather. <laughs> um, so she agreed to uh, help me finish my CFII here at Independent. So effectively, I ended up going to three different schools. Um, and here at Independent was another opportunity and I saw value in that in learning more airspace, different, completely different environment, different weather than what I'd gotten in Oregon yet. So um, in the interest of broadening my resume and getting different experience in different airspace, different weather, um, I saw continued value in that. So I've jumped on it. So when did you, when did you come here? What? October 20th was my first day. October 20th, 2021. 2021. And it is now... Uh... February of 2022. So October, November, December, January, kind of February. Arguably four months. Yeah. So let's call it four months. How many hours have you accrued during your time here? I've accrued about 400 hours. That's unreal. That's unreal. So four months. Just shy of. Four months and 400 hours. That's about 100 hours a month. Yeah. It's incredible. It has been incredible. Yeah. We, um, you know, if you're looking for a job right now, we're hiring, but independent helicopters, we fly a lot. It's very odd that where I work, I work in, so we've got two locations. We have our Newburgh Stewart location and we have our Saratoga Springs location. And they're about, uh, what, two hours apart. Saratoga is about two hours North. It's near Albany. And then our Stewart location is kind of closer to the city. Both of the locations are rivally busy. You guys are busier right now, but during the summer, we put up the same numbers as uh, the Stewart location. So I work in Saratoga, Ben works at Stewart, and we put up the same numbers. We It's very odd to me that just like upstate New York, like these small little towns have as much business as we do. One of the one of the things I'm noticing from when I finished flight school, I interviewed at a couple different places. So I talked to multiple different flight schools. Everywhere I talked to is slammed, super busy, looking for CFIs. I saw so I'm from Colorado originally. I love Colorado. That's my state. Like, I love it there. You, you love Colorado too. I do. <laughs> so there's one operator out there. I think they're called Colorado Heliops. I talked to them and they said their wait list is like over a year right now for students. To bring new students. In. Yeah. Wow. They just don't have the CFIs, which is if, if you're looking to start the helicopter journey and you want to be a flight instructor, man, it is great. Like you got scooped up super quick, super tight. I got scooped up super quick. Everyone is getting picked up really quick because there's no one out there. It's a really good. It's a really good yeah, time. Yeah, it's it seems it seems like there's demand for sure. Yeah, and it was like I said, leading edge approached me before I was even ready to ask. They were they were inquiring. Yeah, and then as soon as I reached out to Independent originally when I was at Leading Edge, um. They very quickly said, how quick can you get here? Yeah. We need you tomorrow. Yeah. So. it's a, it, And you know what? It's a great position to be in as the CFI. Um, I am very happy right now being a CFI. I, I, I enjoy the job and I kind of want to pivot the conversation to that, talking about being a CFI. But in, in a job market right now where we are so in demand, I mean, I, I'm not trying to boost our own ego, but people will need us. Like it, it's a needed job. It's a good position to be in because that gives you wiggle room and bargaining power. Um, that's a good position to be in. 
So as you are a CFI and you have worked as a flight instructor, is it what you expected? Hard to say really what I was expecting. Um, the short version is that I, ha I haven't played a teaching role directly for many years. Um, in the previous job that I had with the patrol, I, I grew into the overall director position and really my biggest, the biggest part that I played was orchestrating and putting together um, uh, the different trainings or the different things that it took to make that operation run. And I would in part communicate with um, supervisors and managers that worked under me to help guide them on what to teach and what to show our new, our, our line patrollers to do. So I had an indirect role in instructing or teaching. So I had, I don't want to say nerves. I was a little bit nervous or I didn't think that I would like it. I wasn't really looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. There's maybe the better way to describe it. I mm -hmm. wasn't really looking forward to it. Um, however, I do, I do remember in the past, I coached gymnastics for a number of years. I, coached, I taught rock climbing for a few years part-time. And I have taught different parts of the patrol world, uh, rope rescue and some other things. And I know that when I did those, I remember enjoying it. So I had this little inkling in the back of my mind that this could be fun, but I wasn't really looking forward to it. In the end, it's probably where we're going with this, is it has been so enjoyable. It's been so rewarding, so satisfying to watch students and like myself remember back to where I was, remember myself struggling through the same thing and remember how my instructors like helped me, coached me. And I remember now I see on the other, other side of the, of the, the spectrum, how they must've felt watching me succeed, watching me learn how to hover for the first time. And I had a student literally today, it's his fourth, fourth flight. And today he got the hover. It's wow. like that aha moment. Yeah. And it's like the smile on his face when I looked at him and I said, bro, you're hovering on your own. When he looked over at me, like that is the moment, like that is satisfaction. That's priceless. That is rewarding. It's priceless. It is. Yeah. So, wow, man. Yeah. No, teaching a student how to hover is one of the greatest feelings ever. I mean, going from, I don't think I've ever struggled with anything as much as I've struggled with learning how to hover. It's, it's very complicated. And the, I mean, it makes sense. You have to hold the cyclic still and like keep the pedal, keep the nose straight and keep the collective up, but actually getting it is very difficult. So I really struggled with it. And then when I get a student to do it, it's like, wow, yeah. so cool. Yeah. It's because so, it's so cool. And when they feel it, it's like, you are now one of us. Like, yeah. welcome to the club, brother. So you're a CFI now. What do you want to do? Where do you want to, where do you want to be? What's your dream job? Good question. And I, uh, I don't have a solid answer for that, okay. which is why I, I struggle with a, with a pause here because I don't know how to answer that because what got me into flying helicopters was generally flying. There, there was a couple of other helicopter experiences that I, that I had in, in, in my previous life uh, before Alaska that 
I was intrigued by helicopters in the Grand Canyon and in Colorado a little bit. Um, it was all it, like those and a lot of what I liked about flying in a helicopter when it was developing this interest was flying in them and looking around at mountains and really pretty scenery and stuff. So like the short version, I guess I would say that like what I really began learning to like about helicopters was flying around and looking at pretty things. So in many ways, I feel like flying tours over like pretty areas, pretty natural, natural geography is going to be a really good thing for me and I'm going to really enjoy, but I don't know if that's the end all. Um, I spent, I spent a lot of time heli skiing and I really enjoyed watching the helicopter pilots drop us off and go fly around and wait for us at the bottom. And that looks like a lot of fun. I've got so much respect for people that do utility. We used helicopters. One of the other things that we used helicopters for at Alyeska was to low, um, to hoist, lift, uh, lift towers into place. And that is an amazing job to watch the precision. And I'm, I've got so much respect for those guys and the precision of the hover skills that are required to hold those things steady that I'm super curious myself because I just, I like a challenge. So I'm super curious and I'm, kind of want to try that sometime i have a lot of experience with ems and it makes me kind of feel like flying ems someday could be a fun thing so i absolutely want to try a bunch of different things do you think one of the things that i all i also didn't really want to be an instructor but now it's great but one of the things that makes me grateful for being an instructor is i I'm totally in the belief that being an instructor has made me a significantly better pilot. Oh my God. Yes. So if you had gone from flight school to tours versus flight school to CFI to tours, I think there's such a benefit, such a benefit, right? You just be 100% like, recommend it. Why? Anybody's listening that is considering not becoming a CFI. Don't tell me why Do become a CFI because it does make you so much better. There's so much that you learn as a CFI. Watching your students learn, the more time you get to perceive different things, now your student's doing the flying and you can look at other things that you didn't realize you didn't see before, one. And when the student is doing something wrong or does puts the wrong control input, it trains your reflexes to be so much faster than you realized they were. They weren't in the beginning, and as it developed, like I could feel the change myself. The time it took me to, to reach in and correct a control input from the beginning with my very first student, for example, versus now, it's like night and day difference. And if I was just, if I just went straight from re receiving my certificates to just flying uh, a job that I didn't get to have that honing of those skills, I'm like, there's no part of just flying that you actually get to hone those skills. Never. Those are correction actions, correction well, reflexes. And the thing is like <clears throat> doing an auto rotation eight times a day. Yeah. Eight times a flight. Yeah. And then like maybe 64 times a day and vortex ring state and slopes and shallow approaches and max performance takeoffs and steep approaches, all of this. You don't get to do an EMS. You don't get to do an offshore. 
Um, utility is cool. They get to do weird stuff, but there's a lot of jobs where you don't, helicopters are used, but you don't get to do cool stuff. Being a CFI, you get to do cool things. You also get to go explore. If you're doing offshore, you don't necessarily get to explore. If you're doing EMS, it's a straight line route. But being a CFI, you are in, in trance with taking care of your student, getting them to where they need to be. And within those bounds, you can do whatever you need to do. So if you want to go explore the backside of a mountain range, you can't. Have you done that? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had the two friends of mine that I mentioned at the beginning of this that recommended that, that I knew from Alaska that took the path of becoming a helicopter pilot that went to Mauna Loa and recommended it. One of them became a CFI and went through this pipeline and the other one did not. The other one got hired straight out of Mauna Loa, finished his ratings there and got hired straight into a tour job in Africa of all places. Nice. Which sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. But I remember him like 10 years later telling me that he was so nervous and he so wished he had become a CFI first because he was all of a sudden flying people around and he felt like he was not ready for it. He felt like if something happened, he did not feel like he was fresh enough and experienced enough to handle an emergency or something that would have come up. Interesting. I remember him very specifically telling me that like, he felt like he jumped straight into that and was in the backseat and not particularly confident. Wow. That's interesting. So speaking of the CFI role, what is the most terrible thing that has happened in your hours as a CFI and the scariest thing and the thing that you don't like thinking about? Can I say this? Yeah. You can say whatever you want. Safe place. Yeah. So I've had, I've had two, um, two moments being a CFI that uh, were learning moments for me. One of which was um, making enough plans myself for a flight that was longer than I was familiar with very early when I got here to independent. And it was a flight that was long enough in distance that required a certain amount of fuel and fuel stops. All right, stop shooting the shit. Tell me what happened. Yeah. So I thought I had enough fuel, but I'll have enough fuel to go down to that point and back. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. So I was like, all right, cool. Uh, we'll go for it. And about halfway back, I started realizing that the fuel was dropping way faster than I, than I was expecting it to. And the low fuel light came on. And I wasn't back at the airport. And when yet. the low fuel light comes on, how much fuel do you have remaining? Five to ten minutes. Five to ten minutes. Okay. So that low fuel light came on. It was nighttime. And I was five to 10 minutes away from the airport. This is an interesting predicament to be in. This is a very interesting predicament. And the decision that I made in a split second was I probably would make it to the airport, but I don't like probabilities. So I landed. What would happen if you were flying along and your helicopter ran out of fuel? What happens? Uh, the engine quits, so we're forced now to make an auto-rotation, obviously. And, and what is an auto-rotation? So an auto-rotation is uh, the act of um, continuing the rotor, the rotors turning and continuing providing lift to hold us in the air in a gentle glide down, descent, down to the ground somewhere. So at that point, 
we don't have power to continue flight, but we can we can uh, make a controlled descent to the ground. But we're limited with what we can see and what we can reach at, with the glide that we have. So your options start to reduce. So it's not the end all, but if there isn't a good place to land, then that could be a problem. So what I chose to do was immediately drop altitude, get down to a place while I still have an engine that's running before I run out of fuel and pick a place to land on my own accord. So I landed in a parking lot uh, of a church of all places <laughs> and uh, it was fine. And I probably could have made it to the airport, but if I didn't, if I ran out of fuel, then I was going to be forced to pick up, to make an auto rotation and pick a place to land in an emergency at that point. And the likelihood of that working out perfectly in your favor is slim. And the likelihood of landing in a church parking lot perfectly is pretty high, near 100%. It's pretty easy just to land in an open parking lot. Yeah. And the thing is, it's all about that decision-making. Um, I, so a similar experience I had is I was on a flight. So the airport is like in central where I work is in central New York. I was flying out West towards, um, Syracuse, New York, got out to Syracuse. We had a pancake breakfast. And one of the things about uh, the aviation community is we do like, it's kind of like a car show, you know, you like pancake breakfast and, but everyone flies in. So you go and check out all the aircraft. So we flew in, we were the only helicopter. So we were like, uh, we were like the cool toy to come see. So everyone came and saw us and then we were leaving on our way back eastbound. We ran into weather. So I, my student was flying along and I was like just monitoring him and we're approaching this wall of weather. So the visibility is like 10 miles. It's eight miles, six miles, five miles, four miles, three miles rain starts. And I looked down at the GPS because the visibility is three miles at this point. I was like, this is not a good situation. So I looked down at the GPS and I punch in nearest airport. Take me directly to it. So it was that sequence. nearest airport direct to enter. By the time I pull my head back up, the visibility is less than a mile. I can't see. <laughs> There's nothing to see. It is all a cloud. What do I do? There's a field right out my left window lower the collective rather quickly circle and land in the field because it's better than flying into the clouds and landing in a church parking lot is better than flying into indeed in, in, <laughs> into an engine failure okay so i think it became a very amazing learning experience for the student that i was flying with and for you and for me so for sure. okay so almost running out of fuel what was the second time that you almost pooped yourself <laughs> My second and so far only other um, was uh, I have I've heard for uh, the, the two years now that since I started flying these helicopters that the Robinson 22 and the 44 and the 66, I assume, which I have not flown yet, right, have a very, very strong tail rotor as compared to many larger helicopters. And uh, I learned that on accident. <clears throat> um I, I've been told that, but I experienced it on accident. I have also heard that. So um, so what happened to me was with a commercial student, and this was also a lesson learned as a CFI, to not let your guard down. I had a commercial student who was nearing the end of his commercial training, and I relaxed a little bit with how much I was guarding controls. And we were just on run-up. We were on the ground. 
getting like just running the engine up still doing some of our pre-flight checks we had checked our mags and we were getting ready to do a thing called a sprag clutch check and in order to do that we're our engine is not run up to full speed uh we roll the engine up to about 80 percent of what is kind of normal and then we close the throttle very abruptly and drop the engine RPMs, and we want to confirm that the rotor RPMs stay up so that they're, they disconnect if effectively. Otherwise, normally the engine needle, it's measuring the engine RPMs, and the rotor needles are basically matched. So in that case, we split those needles and confirm that our spread clutch is working, which is what allows us to do an auto rotation. And as he rolled up to 80% to close the throttle. Uh, the, this is in the R44. And the R44 specifically has a spring, and I can't tell you why, but has a spring loaded left pedal. Correct, yeah. If you don't hold the pedals neutral, um, specifically, it will slowly favor the left mm -hmm. and press full left pedal. And my student didn't have his feet on the pedals. And I had relaxed a bit and wasn't guarding them. And as he rolled up to 80%, uh, the left pedal was fully in. So with full left pedal and at only 80%, that was enough as he rolled up from 70 just to 80%, that was enough to provide enough anti-torque with our tail rotor to start the helicopter in a spin on the ground. So on the pavement, which... By chance, that morning was the first frost that we had gotten. So it was a little bit slippery pavement. But uh, it was enough to start a turn. And then he closed the throttle, which took away our ability to apply counter, counter torque to stop the spin. Because you have no torque. Because now the engine, now, now the RPMs are all dropping. There's no torque left anymore. So it started a spin, and we spun a full 360 degrees on that parking spot. You on the ground spun a helicopter. Spun a helicopter on the ground. 360 degrees yep. with zero control. Zero control. What were your thoughts? Uh, other than oh shit, like what the hell is happening? Yeah. And how did this just occur? <laughs> so my instant reaction was reach forward and pull the pull the mixture and turn kill, the engine kill, off. Kill the engine. Turn the helicopter. Like, off. I don't know what is happening here, but I'm killing the engine. Yeah. <laughs> So, so it came it came to rest basically at the exact 360 degree mark. And my student and I looked at each other and shook our heads and we got out of the helicopter and called it a day. Yep, that's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Nothing mechanical was wrong. It was pilot error. It was um first of all, my student that did not put his feet on the pedals, and most of all, uh, I wasn't guarding them and watching them tight enough. Yeah. So my fault. That's that's a very interesting situation. Well, I'm sorry that happened, but congratulations. <laughs> that uh, I think that's a greater learning lesson than you can get in any textbook ever. You know, because yep. the 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 mechanics of what happened make sense, yep. but, but actually experiencing it provides so much insight on so many other aspects of flying. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's a it's another whole thing I do in my checklist pre start now is before the sprag clutch check. Pedals are neutral. <laughs> yeah. Spread clutch check in three, two, one. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it, it's, a, it's a crazy experience. I think 
my craziest experience that I've ever had. Uh, so one of the stupidest things that I ever did as a student was, do you remember our instructor, Maria? Yeah. Maria. Okay. Maria was a Russian lady who was a pilot and she was one of the kindest, sweetest women, women, one of the kindest, sweetest ladies I have ever met in my entire life. And, uh, we were practicing 180 degree auto rotations. What a 180 degree auto rotation is a mat picture a runway right now. And we would be flying parallel to that runway about 2000 feet above it. And we would say, okay, we're parallel to the runway 2000 feet above it. We're going to chop the engine and you have to turn 180 degrees back around and land on the runway. We are practicing these and we get like, we fly around, we get to the point where we're parallel. And without warning, I just chopped the engine on Maria. I don't know if I blacked out <laughs> or if my head, my head space was <laughs> so in the mind, if I was just like, so in the mind space that I needed to like enter the auto rotation. And I was just thinking about it so much, but I did not tell her that I was going to do an auto rotation. She handled it like a champ. Um, and I have had students do that to me too, where they just roll the engine off and it's, it's slightly unnerving, but it tests your abilities. If you go out and become a tour pilot, you, you never have a student accidentally rolling the throttle off. Yep. So yep. it's a great opportunity. Well, oh Ben, I want to conclude this with one of the things that I am concerned about in you have insight on this is is helicopters is is it worth switching careers to get into helicopters and if let's say you've got like a family behind you can you provide enough for that family by making the choice to switch to helicopters hmm. i uh i have i i have enough connections or friends in the industry that I hear that the light at the end of the tunnel is golden. And they're like, the answer to that question is yes. The process of getting there is where I'm still at, still experiencing and is a hard one. So relative to providing for um, a, a pile of people or whoever it is that you're trying to provide money for this process, the, the process of getting your certificates is expensive how much did it cost you just over a hundred thousand dollars okay about 102 yeah um, all said and done mine was 117 yeah it is expensive and then the question is what is on what is on the other side when you get those and what what is the job market like it seems like the job market is hot right now and when you have the experience to qualify for those jobs, they're there. But what does it take to get to that spot where you qualify for those jobs? That is our building. And that's what we're talking about relative to becoming a CFI or finding another job somewhere. Um, there are jobs that you can get. Um, I've got a friend that just got out of, just finished certificates that just got hired on to a job that is flying R44s and flying tours. They're flying very short tours, many of them in a row, and it pays very, very, it pays about $12 an hour to, to, to actually fly. So the income is based on tips in that case. So is that, depending on how much you make, how much you fly, what does that end up equating to and how rapidly will that person gain hours to qualify for the next job in the lineup? 
that person isn't getting the experience as a CFI, isn't honing those skills that we've been talking about as far as reflexes go. Um, as a CFI, I've seen a range from what I saw the pay scale was at leading edge and the, the pay scale is at independent. And in either case, it's tough to make a living on and support a family. Um, not to say that it can't be done, but that's the, that's the, the grind is getting through that phase of our building to qualify for the higher paying jobs. How many hours would you say it takes to get to those higher paying jobs? What, what is it a thousand? Is it 1500 or is it 2000? Uh, from the job listings that I've seen, and this is where I don't have the experience other than what I've seen, it seems like 1500 is a fairly good, like to me, what I look at, um, when I see a job, I, I'm trying to find a job that pays as much or more than where I came from, from the job that I had most recently. That's pretty that's, incredible that's after my targets. three or four years. So you spent 20 years in the peak and whatever you got at the peak there, you could be making four years after switching to this. Company. It is. That's exactly right. Good eye. Because like, that's what I was looking at measuring all along is all right. It's going to be a grind for a couple of years, but like I can get, I feel like I can get through that. And then the grass is greener over there. Once I get through that period then I'll climb faster and I should be poised to make more money than I was before and be able to pay off my loans, pay off my debts. <laughs> Speaking of that, did you take loans out for school? No. Um, my wife and I pulled money out of our like, retirement savings wow. to pay for this. So we effectively, we, we put everything on a credit card as, I, as we went and then paid that credit card off. So we got air miles and stuff out of it. Yeah. But, Was so that painful? So we loaned it to ourselves and now we've got to pay that back to ourselves. So that. You know what? Actually, the first person I think you're the first person that I've asked that has done that debt free. Um, yeah, it's effectively debt free to anybody else, yeah, but ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And however, funny enough, the like the stock market and where those investments were during the course of this because of COVID, things were growing quite rapidly, and it actually ended up costing us much less than what that total dollar amount was that I said. Well, congratulations. Because of those retirement investments. But yeah. anyway, that's neither here nor there. But no, no, still, no. we're going to like, I've tracked it and I will be paying that back to ourselves. Yeah. Full at some point. So, well, what, what my uh, payment situation was, is I took all the loans out from the federal government. Mauna Loa had, the reason I went to Mauna Loa, you had your friends that recommended it who had done it a decade prior. I looked at schools and I was like, how can I pay for this? I don't have, I don't have access to funding. Um, 18 or 19, I don't have money. I don't have savings because my parents were, they just weren't able to save for that. So how am I going to pay for this? Well, Mauna Loa had a federal student loan. So I applied for their federal student loan, got approved. So I've got a federal loan through the government for $120,000. The, the great thing about the COVID pandemic is during my time period is when I started school till now that I've been out of school for almost a year, I've never paid a, a penny on it, which is cool. President Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they, all, they, they canceled student loan payments for the duration of the pandemic. We'll see how long that goes. But 
there are ways to pay for being a helicopter pilot. Did you ever consider going military? Uh, I considered going military for uh, something else before helicopters, and I'm at an age where I think I'm past where they would consider me for helicopters. Yeah, you old so as I hell, did, huh? I didn't even look at it. I'm an old gate. I'm an old geezer. You at your big ass age? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's incredible, Ben. I uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It was a pleasure. Okay. Got any final Thanks. words? Thanks for having me. No, do it. Yeah. And that that's it. Like, if it's something that you've been thinking about, me, like, at my age, uh, I am aging. No, I'm not old, I don't think. I'm older than many people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm starting to feel it. But, like, one thing that I've definitely learned in my life and what I've experienced is live life to its fullest. And if you have something that you want to do, someplace you want to go, whatever it is, like, do it. There's no time like the present. Make it happen for yourself and don't fall into the, the drone of what uh, culture or society or people that you know tell you is what you're supposed to do. Do you. Yeah, and the first student I ever interviewed or the first person I ever interviewed on this podcast was a prior student of mine who was 69. So that's cool. If there's a time, it's now. Yeah. Ben, it was a pleasure. Take care. Okay. Thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure, my man. Thank you, Devin. You got to take care. All right.